Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. A typical murder mystery, or not a murder mystery, sorry, a, a, a crime story where somebody wants somebody dead, they hire a hitman to kill them, and then things go awry. A hitman who's also a male stripper. Yes. Am which, I getting these confused? <laughs> oddly, we see more of him in this movie than we did in Magic Mike. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, so why? So you thumbs up? You liked it? Oh yeah, it was it was great. I mean, William Friedkin. Would you? How would you compare it to say Natural Born Killers? Well, is that, is that this kind of like scale? Natural Born Killers. So yeah, I don't either. I'm just just trying to find a, a baseline here. No, it it's it has a real dark, kind of a film noirish sort of vibe. I mean, it feels more like a, a U-turn or or Red Rock West. Not that I'm comparing it to great films, but it has that kind of you know femme fatale, you know, kind of just gritty, rotten America sort of feel. I mean, it's you know it's Trailer Park. It's just greasy fried texas food it's just everything about it is just grimy and you make it you make it sound so sexy it's well but william friedkin really really gets into that grit nicely he did it he did it um likewise with bug another film that he uh did based on a play in the last few years, which I didn't like nearly as much as this one. Bug just really made me feel claustrophobic and, and just really gross. This one at least had more really, uh, it had humor. It just like really dark humor. (laughs) So I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, um, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't crazy about rules of engagement. Uh, yeah, and you know, some I, I didn't, I, I, I don't think I saw his. Uh, God, what else have I? I mean, I just haven't seen a lot of his recent stuff. I guess you know, it's just since, it's, he's he's one of those like great iconic '70s directors who's still around directing films that you don't think about because he is so. He's just they're much fewer and more far between. I liked The Hunted. I actually liked that one quite a bit. Um, yeah, you know that was uh, that was uh, Benicio, right? Mm-hmm. And Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, yeah, and Tommy Lee Jones again. You're right. I no, I I like that. And but I, you know, you're. I mean, we're going to talk about we're going to we're going to talk a lot more about William Friedkin coming up. But the um, uh, but I you know I just haven't seen enough of the uh, enough of his recent stuff to to really uh, be able to say uh, the movies that I remember him from are you know 35 years old. Yeah, I mean, his great stretch of films really ran in the 70s. French yeah. Connection, The Exorcist, Sorcerer. 
Um, I've never seen To Live and Die in L.A., but I hear it kind of fits that vibe. Yeah, no, it totally fits that vibe, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then in the... I don't think I saw anything else he did in the 80s. I think the next thing I saw was Blue Chips, you know, and I, I really don't remember much about that. No. Other than it was... A, I think it was a free movie that I got in college, one of those free screenings, so... I uh, I didn't see it. I, I did... Uh, gosh, did I see... The episodes he did of no, I have not seen the episodes he did of uh, of CSI. Mm. Uh, anyway, so okay, so well, it's good. So he it's knows how to direct. So rumored to have directed a lot of this film in like one takes. Like he would do a take, got it, good, moving on. Well, he's very confident. He is confident in, in his uh, confident and wise in his age. Hmm. So, um. All right. Well, so should I uh, should I see it? Is that what you're saying? It's worth seeing. It's worth seeing. All right. It's worth um, seeing. It I'll makes see. you feel a little dirty, but it's still is worth it on, seeing. Is it available on IMAX? Can I see uh, it in IMAX 3D? <laughs> I don't think so. It's not a film you would want to see IMAX or 3D. So. <laughs> All right. I think you're probably selling it short, but uh, the jury's out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so, what else did you want to talk about here? We've, you've got, you've seen, you've seen more trailers. Than I've been, I have been swamped, and so I am behind on trailers. All I've seen now is the poster for Anthony Hopkins playing Hitchcock. Yeah, man, it's, it looks, it looks uh, pretty good. It, uh, I mean, he looks great. The poster design is is really fun. Yeah. Um, I, I just I love it. So um interestingly enough, um you know, that movie's coming out I think before the end of the year. There's another Hitchcock movie that's being made as well that I think is supposed to also come out at, toward the end of the year. The the um Anthony Hopkins story is about Hitchcock making Psycho and all the dealing that he's going on with that. This other version has has Toby Jones playing Hitchcock while he's making The Birds and it's called The Girl. And uh so We should this is going to be a series. About, well, I think it's more about his relationship with um uh with Tippy Hedren. You know, we should just make a movie about him making every movie that he made with a different actor playing him. Yeah, by the time you get to something like murder or, you know, sabotage, you uh -huh. know, we could we could get our buddy Chad Stoops to play him. <laughs> a little. Uh, he didn't have to wear a fat suit. That's well, Val Kilmer. Oh yeah, there you go. Huh? We found the role. This is the Perfect. role of a life. Role of a lifetime. Oh, oh man. Okay. So I am actually very excited about this. I know that there are. I mean, I had this conversation. Um, uh, with uh, some some other uh, media obsessed friends and and I mentioned I, I think I I mentioned Hitchcock in the context of film study and uh, both of them at the same time went Ugh. <laughs> and I'm like oh. I'm looking at it going what what <laughs> like they they're only stereotypes now because of him right please holier than thou. Yeah, I, I mean, his films are great. I mean, <laughs> the last few aren't as good, but I mean, honestly, you almost just can't go wrong watching any of his films. I don't think so. I quite like them, and I, I, uh, I, I find them. I still find them interesting uh, to to watch. I still get excited. Did, did did we ever post the 
the uh, the rear window recut. Did I show you? Uh, that? Yes, we did. We did yeah, post. We did. We should post that, that again clever. twice. We should post that once a week. We really should. People <laughs> should see everybody that. Everybody in the world has seen it. So good. So uh, so this yeah. is what I'm hoping for. Tell I'm me. hoping that Alfred Hitchcock and uh, the girl, or Hitchcock and the girl, I, um, both actors end up getting Best Actor nominations. So we have two Hitchcocks, and then we need to get the two Abraham Lincolns, all of them nominated. <laughs> so it's Hitchcock versus Hitchcock versus Lincoln versus Lincoln. <laughs> I don't know if Vampire Hunter is going to stand up against those other movies, man. I, that doesn't matter. We're not talking quality. I just want to see that on the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I'm in. If, I'm in. I'm, if you are, I'm in. You tell me, you, you tell me to jump. We just need another Hitchcock or Lincoln movie to be released before the end of the year <laughs> so that we can really pack the ballot. Do you know who would make a great Lincoln? I was thinking about this as I was uh, watching uh, this evening's film. Are you going to you... say Ewan McGregor? No, I'm totally not. Are you going to say Billy Crudup? You are so, so wrong. Are you going to say, oh, I know who you're going to say, Steve Buscemi. On second thought, that no, but now I I may change my mind. No, that uh, Danny DeVito. I'd like to see him in a Lincoln suit. <laughs> oh <laughs> yes. Oh man. It would be the alternate reality when the <laughs> bullet doesn't kill him. It's the later because... years when he, as he gets older and smaller and and wider. <laughs> I hey, don't knock it, man. I've seen Stranger Things. Have you? One of them is the Vampire Hunter. <laughs> uh, okay. So what else did you? So we we got to talk about the Hobbit trailer. Where do you stand on that? The, uh, this thumbs is the... up. I, I, it's nice seeing a trailer that's more. Uh, it's really kind of more specific to this particular film. You know, the previous stuff we'd seen had uh, smog in it and all sorts of images that take place toward the end of the book. Now we're really focusing on just things that are happening in this first film. So it looks pretty exciting. Are you supposed to call it smog? Isn't it smog? I always thought it was just smog. Uh, it could be. I, I've always called it smog. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the record saying I think you're wrong on this. And I'll tell you why. Because you catch me every time I screw up a pronunciation. I think, I think this may be one where, where you may be wrong. <laughs> I think a dragon's name sounds better when it's Smaug. I don't know. All right, you may, I, you may, you may have a plus two points on the dragon reference, but I still think pronunciation generally is going to be Smog. Smog. <laughs> it may. There's sort of a sh Smog. <laughs> oh, look out! It's Smog. <laughs> don't let it burn you to a schmear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, but yes, what, it looks great. It so, looks what else? It looks terrific, and uh, I, you know, I, I really want to see it in the. Uh, you know, now they've done. We talked about this. Now they've did, they're they're doing the 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 altered frame rate, mm, and yes. and they're only releasing that in select markets. How do I know if I'm one of those markets? I don't know. I'm I'm curious about that. If they're going to have something on um, a website or something where you can find out if your local theater has the the new projector or whatever it's going to be whatever it takes in order to project it because that's the, uh, the one i want to see 
that's going to be the one. Mm. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see it. Okay, uh, I did we was there something else you wanted to talk about? Another trailer, or should I just catch up and we'll we'll talk about them next week? Well, only one more trailer. I'm just going to mention. Oh yeah, um, because a uh, a professor of mine from film school, Jerry Aronson, produced a documentary that did uh, really well at uh, Sundance this past year called Chasing Ice about the disappearing glaciers. And um, the trailer it just uh, came online uh, this week on uh, on Apple trailers. So um, looks really interesting. Very interesting documentary about how the glaciers are all kind of uh, slowly disappearing. And uh, it looks to be very, very interesting documentary about that. Well, he is. Uh, I can't I can't believe that. I'm very excited to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jerry. Good old Jerry. Uh good times um so uh, excellent so we need to catch uh, chasing ice and uh, the hobbit and killer joe and uh pretty much anything with danny devito pretty much all right pretty much uh even matilda even <laughs> okay pretty much anything so what are we what are we doing tonight we're still on this uh we're still on this uh okay this... i've got the question of the night for you oh are you ready for this yeah oh okay all right holly so, hunter who do you think no that's wrong who do you think <laughs> ewan mcgregor is going to look more like when he gets older alec <laughs> guinness or albert finney <laughs> holly hunter <laughs> I nailed it. <laughs> you may be right. <laughs> oh, does the cat from Cat in the Hat? Uh, can I have a write-in? Any sort of a write-in? <laughs> I no, I'm with you on Albert Finney. I think you. I think that's a loaded, uh, a loaded set of questions. I, I there are loaded responses. I think he's. I think he's on the on the Albert Finney train. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's not you know uh, Albert Finney. Uh, he's a he's a quality piece of work. Although when he has a beard, I can see the Alec Guinness. I can see it there. I can, but Alec Guinness, I don't. The, Alec Guinness never uh, never put on the kind of weight that Albert Finney's carrying. Oh yes, he did. <laughs> did he really? At the end, I'm looking up pictures. Oh yes, he did. No, <laughs> Alec Guinness. Yes, he he, do you think if I Alec Guinness fat will? <laughs> Uh, can I see pictures of of that? What was that movie that he was in later in his life? It was a very trippy. Oh, I don't know. Man, I'm not. I don't know if I'm. Uh, I'm with you uh, on that. No, I, I I agree. I think Albert Finney is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's Kafka. Albert Finney. Uh, Kafka. That's the that was the last movie I saw Alec Guinness in, and uh, yeah, he was a little. A little Alec bigger. Alec Guinness. Uh, okay. And so I'm looking looking for him, and I'm not kidding you. In the top row, or second uh, second row, is a picture of freaking Magic Mike. Channing Tatum shows up for a Google image search of Kafka Alec Guinness. <laughs> what is really the web trying to tell you this is a th this is a, a failure of internet intelligence right there he's not albert finney large like that you are blowing smoke 
All right. Here's the thing. This is the question of the night for you. I've been thinking about this all week. Makes me crazy. This has nearly driven me, uh, driven me uh, into a a peak. A peak. Wow. Last week, as we closed the show, you intimated, maybe not even intimated. It was late. That you had real problems with this movie. And if I had a if I had a baseball bat, I would go and take it to your car. <laughs> I have issues with this film. That doesn't mean I don't like it. I was actually like curious. I went to my flick chart and I'm like, where is this falling? And it's under 500. It's in my top 500 right now. I'd have it's to in see your what top it's up against, but 500? The top 500? <laughs> It's at 411. That right is now. insane. And I noticed that it's number 92 on yours. Oh no, check again, son. It's number 2 now. Oh, I re-ranked tonight. It's number 2. I, there are so I've seen this movie a uh shall we say a number of times. And there are very few movies that can that can uh, cause me to weep at the end every time I see it. Every time. Yeah. That says a lot. It does. It says I'm a, a simpering whelp. Hey, I, I'm the same with Field of Dreams, so. <laughs> and see, that was a terrible movie. No, uh, I didn't mean Well, okay. We, <laughs> I didn't mean that. We each have Let me our uh, film. <laughs> <laughs> My nemesis, Field of That's Dreams. Right. Big Fish versus Field of Dreams. <laughs> Duke it out. Okay, so tell me, would you do? Let's can you lay it out for me? What are your What are your problems with this movie? See if See if you can make me hate it as much as you. No, I. I no, don't I hear know you. You I, hate that's, it. I, that's not my goal because you know I I still love Field of Dreams. You didn't uh, work any magic against uh, that one for me. <laughs> Here's the thing about the film. I I feel like it's so close to being what it wants to be and what I want it to be. And every time I watch it, like I, this is a film where I read the script before I watched it. I really enjoyed the script. And then I saw the movie and, and don't get me wrong. The end still gets me a little, a little choked up. Uh, but I always feel like it's close, but it's just not quite there. And I don't know if it's the script um, John August. I, uh, I'll go into, I'll talk about him here in a little bit. Um, I don't know if it's Tim Burton's direction. I'm not quite sure. I think some of it is um, Billy Crudup. <laughs> I really just don't like him at all in this film. What? What? Yeah. Okay. But the the thing is, I feel like I want to get this relationship between the father and the son. And I, I love you know these stories with fathers and sons and and relationship with parents and children sorts of issues. I really love those films. And I, I feel like it's it's close to finding the way to this, but I, I feel like right at the start, I'm just never quite buying into Billy Crudup and his his frustration with his father. And maybe it's because I find his father so fascinating and I find Billy so, or whatever his son's name is, I find him so kind of boring and I, I just, I, I understand how they wrote him I just don't buy into him, and because of that, I have a hard time 
kind of getting into his side of the story. And I, I feel like his growth over the course of the film, because he's the character who needs to grow over the course of this story. You're talking about we William, need to see William him Blue. go from a, a guy who doesn't want to, or feels that his father is kind of always been telling these stories and they're all made up and he really doesn't know his father and he's kind of resentful of that to somebody who finally is able to look past that and and find the father that his father is in the stories and and, and that and, and that journey it happens like he's always fighting it up until the end and spoiler alert we get to the end of the film here and and in a blink of an eye, he switches, and all of a sudden he becomes the storyteller. And there's no transition. There's nothing. It's just he just he just does it. And I just feel like they they missed an opportunity to show me some journey in his growth there. And and I like the end where he sees the reality of all these stories. I think that's actually one of the most magical moments in the film. But leading up to that, I just like his journey. I just never connect with. So there you go. All right. <laughs> I uh, uh that uh that Billy Crudup. I don't uh, I don't mind him. I don't mind him. And I you know this movie, this is a movie that makes me wish I had a really crappy relationship with my father. <laughs> uh because I I really believe that that we all deserve a reconciliation like this one. I mean, I I think that that uh you know, I'm I'm absolutely disagree with you on the on this um uh on this th that that there was no transition uh for for william it for, just happens like in the blink of an eye all right well i i think that it happens over the course of the the film and particularly over the course of his conversation uh with um um uh uh helena bonham carter's uh grown-up uh, grown jenny. Grown jenny right i i think that's where he he begins to open up as he starts to uncover the evidence um that in in fact uh, you know, he's learning that his father was that that there are there are breadcrumbs of truth, there are breadcrumbs of reality, sort of peppered through the stories that 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 make up the tapestry of of uh, Edward Bloom's life, and and so by the time uh, he you know the, so by the time he gets to this to this point where he gets this sort of inciting the this third act kind of twist where he realizes his dad's had a stroke. And, and he learns of this, he, he realizes that he has been the one all along that has put up these crazy walls uh, between him and his father. And he put up these walls that were that ended up. And when you when you look at the initial fight on the boat, uh, they uh, there he, he where, you know, his dad was telling the uh, telling the stories just because that's that's his character. That's who he was. He's telling the stories at the at the party on the boat and and uh, young or and Edward walks out. Um, you know, that really is the the initial inciting incident where we realize that that, you know, he's uh, Crudup's character has put up these walls completely arbitrarily like this. This guy is just an old man who who is the affable a uh, likable guy because of the nature of his stories and mm -hmm. and that's why people show up and 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 his son uh you know I just I think what what Crudup really communicates really uh, sort of well for me is that uh he resents his dad because he does not have that same sort of natural magnetism 
that his dad does and uh, and and is not able to to sort of weave this this uh, thread of his life into such a, a wonderful and compelling story about a guy who ends up being an everyman. I mean, that's what, that's the story of Edward Bloom is, is the story of a just, he's just a guy and he's a guy with, uh, with a, a kind and clever and charming personality. And he turns his everyman story into wonderful sort of heroic, uh, vaudeville. Uh, and, and I find that part just magical as we, as we watch him, uh, we watch Albert Finney's Edward Bloom on one end of the sort of uh, uh, fantastical spectrum, and we watch uh, Ewan, or, uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Billy Crudup on the other end of this sort of hyper-conservative uh, uh, kind of storytelling nature. They come together in the middle and realize, uh, as Billy Crudup realizes at the end, that he is just as capable of turning his story into a heroic rescue uh, as his dad was. And I think that is, that is the story of redemption of this movie. I think it's just fantastic. Okay. I can see all of that. I can see everything you're saying. I just don't, for me, I don't feel that it clicks. Like, I feel like that's what they're trying to do with it, but I just don't feel like it's ever quite getting to all the right pieces. And it's, it's just, I, 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 I struggle with it because this is a film that I feel like I should like so much more. And every time I watch it, I'm like, okay, I'm, and I always go in an open mind. I'm like, okay, I'm going to really like it this time. I'm going to really try to, you know, get through these things. And every time it just, there's things about it that just aren't working and it just kind of is falling flat. And I, I feel like in, in so many ways, it's so close to being what I'm wanting it to be, but I just don't. It's never quite there. Well, let's talk yeah. a little bit about uh, a little bit about John August. I, I, I think in you know I, I'm interested to hear how much you sort of lay. Uh, how much of the responsibility for this you lay on August himself, and we have sort of the benefit uh, of uh, of talking about this film in the context of John August writing the screenplay that he is a uh, you know a, a fantastic blogger and has written pretty extensively about um, you know his. Uh, you know the process of of writing and the the project of that has been Big Fish for for him over the years and Big Fish the musical uh, and. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the th things I find interesting that that to start off to kick this off for you uh, is his post breaking down Big Fish from from March twenty fifth, two thousand twelve. Uh, he had received a uh, well, I'll just read it. A reader forwarded a link to the structural analysis of Big Fish, which attempts to break down my screenplay uh, down into five plot points: the inciting incident, the lock in, first culmination, main culmination, third act twist. It's always strange seeing your work dissected by others, especially when they're trying to fit a specific template with unfamiliar terminology. I've never heard, I've never used or seen the term first culmination then he talks about it he goes point by point into the inciting incident and what and and does he agree from the perspective of having written the film uh this this sort of arc of two stories uh and, and then uh at the end uh the heading does any of this matter august point not really i can't even agree with myself which plot points should carry which labels so it can't be that important uh I wonder if that is any indication of of why you might feel that that the the structure doesn't live up to how much you want the film to be. 
It no, I don't think so. Although uh, I, I'll get into my own opinions about of John August here in a moment. I, I and honestly, I've never read the book that this is based on. Um, the book uh, "Big Fish: A Novel of Mythic Proportions" by Daniel Wallace came out um, I, back in '98, and uh, um, at the time, John August had seen a. Uh, a manuscript of it before it was published. And ever since then, he had been championing it, trying to get it made, went through the hands of Steven Spielberg. It went through the hands of uh, Stephen Daldry, I think, uh, before it finally landed in uh, Tim Burton's and Richard Zanuck's hands. Um, so clearly it's a story that taps into something in John August. Um, again, I, I don't know the differences between the book and the script that they ended up making. Um, but my impression is it, 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 it's, it's, it has those points. It has its inciting incident. It has its, you know, the first and first and second uh, culminations, all those different things that it's talking about. I don't use the terminology that this person did in their breakdown of the script. I do uh, inciting incident, certainly. And some of them, Anyone who kind of studies screenwriting will kind of have some of this language that they use. The thing about writing scripts is there's a lot of different schools of thought as far as, you know, what, how you write your script, which, you know, how you're going to put it together, structure it, all that sort of thing. Regardless of what terminology you use, if any, um, the idea is that it's, these are tools to help you find a better way to develop your story that works for you. I mean, that's really the nature of all of these different things. John August is a person who, um, and I don't know if it's because he's ended up in Hollywood uh, as a screenwriter, but it's he's kind of ended up having this arrogance. And he also has a podcast, um, mm -hmm. which is an interesting podcast to listen to. It's probably most useful for people who are already kind of in the... Hollywood system working as like beginning screenwriters within the system. It's it can be a frustrating podcast if you're not in the system listening to them because they bag on anyone who's not in the system quite a bit. But his point is that theory is a waste of time. What you have to do is write. And that's what writers need to do is write. I certainly agree with that. However, I think that he is a writer who could actually use some understanding of writing, of story theory and what goes into a story. Because I think he's created this thing in his head where he writes these stories that he just writes because it's hard and he puts his time into it and writes a script and makes it, you know, whatever it's going to be because that's what he does because he's a writer without really understanding things that can work within a story to actually make it better. And that's a frustration I have with him. Because to be honest, he hasn't written really many good scripts. I liked Go quite a bit. Um, and I mostly like Big Fish. Other than that, I don't like anything that he's written. See, that's funny. I, you know, we're, we're sort of in the same. I didn't like Go. Um, I, but, but that may be because I'm not crazy about Jay Moore. Uh, I <laughs> love Big Fish. Didn't like Charlie's Angels. Titan AE is a big favorite of my kids. I'm not crazy about it. Charlie no. and the Chocolate Factory, meh. Corpse Bride, meh. Frankenweenie is the biggest meh of them all. 
Um, well, I haven't seen the nine. So no, let's not I know. No, I'm judging. I'm, I'm okay. full on judge judging. Away. Uh, the nines uh, I haven't actually seen. So um, I haven't either. So I can't talk to that one. Uh, yeah. Um, and I know there's plenty. You know, like many working screenwriters in Hollywood, there are countless scripts that he's been a part of that he's he's written. Like he was very involved in Prince of Persia, which is another terrible film. Um, he's probably lucky he didn't get credited on that one. There's a lot of films that he's, you know, been involved with. He's written drafts of, um, I think, Priest, another terrible film. I think he was involved with that one for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think he writes good scripts. And he's a person I think could use a schooling on story theory. Now, does that play into what I think is working and not working within this film? Only to a certain extent, because I, you know, again, I'm so torn. Like, sometimes I think there are certain things that Tim Burton does that he chooses when he's directing yeah. that aren't clicking with me. Sometimes his Tim Burton-isms are just too much for me. And sometimes I think there's a few cases where I've seen a film where I'm like, God, that's such almost a good movie. And if only they had the right director making it, it could have been great. And I think that if Steven Spielberg had done this film, I think I would have liked it a lot more. Just like... Uh, what was the other one that I found the same thing? Oh, The Island. Michael Bay's The Island, oddly enough, also with Ewan McGregor, mm -hmm. was a, a very fascinating story that I think would have been a hundred times better if Michael Bay had not been the person directing him, but it had been somebody doing kind of a more smaller, intense kind of indie sci-fi action film. So it's hard for me to pinpoint it on just the script. And that's why I'm so torn between the, the script or the direction in this film. Again, not to say I don't like it. There's so many things about this script and the and the movie that I really, really enjoy. The magic of it, the um, the the southern gothic vibe of it all. Jessica Lange is fantastic in this film, as is Alison Lohman, her, her younger counterpart. I think they're the best performances in the film. I just love those two, and I think they work so well. The best scene in the film, I is I think, is actually the one with. Jessica Lang and Albert Finney in the bathtub. I just, oh. I think that is one of the most heartbreaking, beautiful scenes of a relationship in in many films of recent of recent days. Totally agree. So totally agree. So Tim Burton then. Yeah, Tim Burton. You know what I mean? Right? Am I right? Tim Burton. He's an interesting one. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we sort of talked a little bit about Tim Burton. Uh, we're, we're talking uh, about a, a couple of Tim Burton films in this uh, series. And um, I, I generally find uh, Tim Burton stuff sort of, uh, I don't think it ages well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I totally know. Like, <laughs> I think we talked about it last time. Beetlejuice was one of my favorite movies when I was young. I revisited it and felt a little sad that I did because it just... Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. That makes me sad, too. I I uh, absolutely feel the same way about, you know, Batman, uh, mm -hmm. which makes me so sad because that actually destroys my childhood. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, I'm sorry. I Fans, I'm sorry. that The Batmobile, the Tim Burton Batmobile, is an atrocity. That thing, it's... It's a it, Tim Burton it's, one. Yeah, it's a blight. Mm. It's a blight on history uh, on on the canon. That's what I'm saying. Well, I think position. it's better than the one from the TV show. 
I'm I even think it's 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 not as good as that. Okay. Parachute. The one on the TV show had a parachute. <laughs> huh? Which every car should come with. <laughs> I I believe that and I stand by it. Uh so yeah, no, I, I usually I don't think they age well. I, I think they uh I think sometimes that that crazy vision uh that that looks just so stunning uh, in its uh, just sort of shock uh, uh, in the, the shock factor of it um, and just the sort of weird uh, kind of vividness and contrast of it ends up uh, being fantastic in the moment and uh, loses um, loses a lot of power the, the uh, you know the next time you see it uh, years later I just doesn't they just don't hold up and and uh, it's the risk of of kind of the I see dead people move, you know, uh, you know, once that secret's out, uh, once that vision's out, once you've seen Charlie and the chocolate factory, once you've seen, uh, Beetlejuice, you kind of know the tricks. Yeah. They, and they all see, this is why I think I can pit, pin a lot of the blame on Tim Burton because I, I can't get emotionally involved in any of his films. You know, I, I think the closest, uh, emotionally to, Big Fish would probably be Edward Scissorhands. I think that has a little more of kind of an emotional resonance in that film. And a lot of people gravitate to it. But for me, I've never been able to, again, get emotionally invested in the characters in that film. I think it's a fascinating story. I think it looks beautiful, but it's it's always kind of fallen flat for me. You know, I, um, I, I, that's, uh, that's, I, I sort of lay into Tim Burton a little bit, uh, my impression of Tim Burton only to build up to the contrast, which is again, where I disagree with you, because I think this film is, is likely the most personal film that I feel like Tim Burton has turned out. And, and, uh, I think that's why I resonate quite, uh, as, as well as I do with it. Uh, it feels like it's a story that, uh, you know, you really get the sense that he's telling a story that's that is important to him, and and I think sure. you know it was. I mean, from the from uh, just the the backstory, the way I understand it, he is, you know, this reconciliation story is is uh, you know very much modeled after his own reconciliation with his dad, um, who also was a, a carp, and um, and and so there are there are these moments that you feel like are are uh, you know you're reliving history and and he really you know he is one of those guys who when he was six got to say who would play you in a movie and he said billy crudup that's right who hadn't been wasn't born yet and so there was that it was kind of awkward very wise beyond his years (laughs) that's right yeah 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 to that point i mean you're right his his father had died a few years before this his his mother had died just right before he signed on to the film so he was dealing both of their deaths really hit him hard and making this film he really wanted to do something smaller more personal after doing planet of the apes which is a big failed spectacle i think um and i think he picked a great script to do that it's definitely a smaller story it has it has the vibe that he needs to create something that is more personal yet still maintains that Tim Burtonness, mm-hmm. um, why and, and and doing it that has kind of that Southern Gothic feel where it's kind of got this this myst- mysterious air to everything and it's kind of got this decay and it just it feels like you can it feels palpable almost you can you can really feel this film especially like when you're in the the haunted forest outside of Spectre and you know just everything about 
that area and the circus and moments that he captures so well, like when Edward Bloom sees Sandra for the first time and everything freezes in the circus tent and he walks up toward her. I mean, that is a magical moment. And that's the sort of thing that um, this movie uh, thrives on. Like those sorts of moments, I I think, are so good. And Tim Burton knows how to direct scenes like that and capture the quirkiness and the magic of those moments. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, I think that's true and and that that is in so many ways why this movie this movie in particular works with with that feel of uh, that that particular touch of Tim Burton uh because uh, gosh, this that that sort of vibrant sensibility and and the spectacle of it I think for me works so well around a story of reconciliation like this that is so in fact grounded in humanity mm-hmm. uh and and i think that's what's easy to to uh to sort of skip uh, as as you're watching the craziness that that sort of unfolds and and the fact that danny devito is a werewolf and there's this giant who actually is uh, quite a handy carpenter and um uh, you know the the uh the fantastic sleight of hand with the uh, uh the north korean siamese twins at the at the graveyard scene i mean there's so much going on on screen i think that that you you sort of miss on first or second viewing the fact that this is a this is a story that is about as human as uh as tim burton has ever uh, really approached and and that i find is is uh, makes it a, a really just sort of a magical experience yeah no, he he captures a lot of it and and you're right the scene at the end i think is is a very solid scene at the grave when you see the realities of all of his stories mm-hmm. and i think that plays very nicely i really enjoy how all of that works um and and the whole moment leading up to that with you know running his father to the river and all of that I, it, there's a lot of great stuff happening at the end of this film and actually i think something that for me, stands out as um, kind of a, one of just the, the a key line in the film. It's it's Robert Guillaume that he says when he's talking about the reality of 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 the birth of the son versus the uh, the story mm-hmm. that that his father always told him, and he's like, you know, if I, if it were up to me, I'd I'd take the the more fantastical version. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, I he says it in, in nicer uh, words, but that to me is really helps define the end of the film. And, and that really does, I think, lead to that, you know, w- w- I kind of see as that kind of quick transition in in uh, will at right at the end of the film. But um, but it is a great moment. And I and I love seeing Robert Guillaume again. I think uh, he needs to be in more films. He just goes by Benson now. Benson Dubois. You know, I actually acted in a, a TV show with him. You did not. I did. Do tell. What was it I called? Was, Can I see it? Is it on iTunes? I don't know. It was Diagnosis Murder. He you did? The, uh, I knew that. He was the priest. Oh, yeah. He was the priest and uh, I was I was an extra. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I would walk goodness. by the windows and all sorts of fun things. Oh, in fact, I can't, but I'll bet I can track this down. We need to put this in the show notes. Uh, it can't be tricky to find. I ended up in like, you know, four or five different episodes, and it was pretty fun. I was actually a featured extra in one, licking a car window and making uh, faces at uh, the lady in it. 
That's great. <laughs> That's ah, yes. So good times. Great. What season do you think you were? I don't know. One or <laughs> two. It was when they were filming it in Denver. All right. That's so. awesome. All right. I'm going to look for that. Yeah. I'm going to track that down. Uh, so anyhow, beyond, you know, beyond uh, Robert Guillaume, who actually was fantastic in this movie as the uh, county doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, Jessica Lang, uh, Allison, uh, Allison Loman, Loman, who is, whew, she's great. So cute. Uh, and Ewan McGregor, I thought did a, a really good job. And I think he really, you know, he's a tentpole of this film. And, uh, e- even though so much of the story is on the kind of, uh, reconciliation of the Albert Finney version of, of himself, so much of the experience we, we sort of get, um, you know, through the relationships that Ewan McGregor builds with that giant smiling face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, I really love the conceit of, of that, of the character. I love, love, love that he is in that so much of his kind of social power is built on the premise that he knows when he is going to die. Yeah. And so he is not afraid of anything right that is absolutely fascinating to me his whole moment with the witch when he looks in her eye i think is played so well oh and and how he plays that all the way through i I think is just so smart leading up to the moment when he is dying and he's just like you know this isn't how i go you know and, and then he gets the son to tell the story and I can't remember what he says right there at the end, but it's it's it plays so nice. It really is a fascinating way to tie all of the the stories together. Yeah, I, it it really is, and it's a it's a theme that works as it, that works so well as a as a an, a theme of empowerment around this character. This kind of again, this everyman character who you know just builds his reputation on these uh, fantastic uh, you, know, you know events that. You know, that in the end, who knows, uh, you know, if they're, uh, you know, how much sort of truth there are to them. What we know is his, he got his power from this belief that he knew when his end would come. And uh, and I, I kind of liken it to, you know, it's a it's that sort of emotional cliffhanger ending that's that's worth talking about, like, uh, you know, a la Inception, because at the end, uh, you know, he says on the deathbed or we're, we're to get from it that you know his story ends like this he says this is this is what it looked like yeah is it is it because that's what he saw uh in, in that vision so many years ago uh or, or because uh he you know really it was more the metaphorical end that he knew that it was the end of the rift between his son and that was a that was sort of a a a release for him to know that he had that there had been that reconciliation that it was time uh or 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 what you know how there how else can you sort of caption what like this means in the context of of understanding when he's going to release that power finally and and let go yeah i thought that was just magically executed i thought that was so great 
And all these characters, they do this sort of bouncing around thing. You know, Albert Finney, uh, in in all of his escapades, even as as he's, uh, you know, as he sort of deteriorates on camera, he still has, uh, you know, when it jumps back into storyland, st- he still has this giant smile on his face and this sort of bouncy, jiggly nature to him. And, and Ewan McGregor is bouncy and jiggly, and, and Billy Crudup is surly and jiggly, and Marion Cotillard <laughs> is, is uh, pregnant and jiggly, and everybody has this sort of comical jiggliness to them this this caricature kind of nature until everything stops and it's like that moment in the in the circus where where all of that energy stops and you get this these moments like like the deathbed scene when when they he he actually it's like a uh uh, like a relay runner hands off the baton uh that's the experience i have when i watch billy crudup take the reins and start telling that story where all of the jiggliness stops and you you actually get that uh, you you see that capability kind of grow from within him. That's a, that's such a great moment. Yeah, I just I wish it built up to it better. Yeah. <sighs> right. But you're right. Every, but you're right. The jiggliness. This is a very jiggly film. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. All right. So and Loudon Wainwright, Loudon Snowden right. Wainwright's in it. Yes. No, you're you're absolutely right about that. Shall we walk through your favorite uh, characters in this film? No, let's walk through your favorite characters. Uh, oh goodness! Well, I, I think uh, the 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 big one for me is Matthew McGrory. I think sort of weirdly uh, steals it for me. He was the he played the the giant, yeah, uh, and he he um, sadly passed away uh, in 2005 but um he was a very large person seven foot seven foot six i think is uh is what i read and uh he he played carl and i think he is a fantastic uh sort of bookend to uh he he's the bookend to everybody who is dealing with an inferiority complex you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, in this film, like he is the emotional bookend to all of their stories, whether it's Danny DeVito, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, Edward, whether it's, uh, you know, Billy Crudup, even, you know, toward or the Jenny. end or Jenny. Absolutely. There, there is that wonderful, uh, I mean, he's just this wonderful sort of stunningly, um, uh, sort of gentle energy about this, this giant on screen that is, um, really a, a giant in real life i thought that was i i loved watching um watching him yeah uh okay i i definitely agree i think he was fantastic and it is sad that um he passed away a couple of years after this yeah so uh but but it's i found that uh you know i i tip my hat to tim burton for casting like a real uh giant in the role somebody who had uh, what is it? Just giantism, gi- gigantism. Um, I mean, he was a very large guy, and they yeah. they do tend to not uh, li- have have great long lives. Right. Um, but uh, it, it was great that he actually cast him as a giant, and then still used force perspective to make him even more a giant. Yes, giant in all of the flashback scenes. Yes, it was it it was great. Um, yeah. uh, and then to you know when you finally see him as a. Uh, 
goodness, as a as a at the the uh, he, you know when you see his height sort of come back into perspective, and he's still a giant. Yeah. It, it just cements the the truth of of the story that uh, you know that we've been learning about this this every man. Yeah. Uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, I think, is always a treat to watch. Uh, it's he's it, always great. I I I I think he would be a great Lincoln. <laughs> I think you're probably right, uh, but you know, sadly, but I doubt I we'll, we'll see Spielberg. We'll see Bashemi, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, Bashemi, Daniel Day Lewis. Mm, I'm torn. I'll just have to go put on my VHS of Con Air, and uh, I'll have to be okay. He probably with that. called Bashemi first, but Bashemi was probably busy. He was busy doing Con Air too. Yeah, um, I I really like uh, Buscemi. I like the role he plays in this uh, in this film, and that that sort of uh, y- you know he's it, it's that point where um, uh, where Billy Crudup's character runs into him in the bank, and they have that exchange. Meet Ewan about, McGregor. I, yeah, I'm sorry, Ewan McGregor's character meets him in the bank, and they have that exchange about how he's uh, you know he's robbing the bank and <laughs> and so Ewan McGregor get takes some uh, some money his own money out so it looks like he's robbed it uh, right because the savings and loan was broke and, and and I found that um uh really touching and and that was a a plot point that I think worked really well because at the end when you realize that that um uh, he's going back and buying the city of of Spectre He's calling in all these favors, and I, I, it sort of occurred to me that he has built his reputation on his his the power of his goodness and his kindness, and and um, I think Buscemi is kind of the smiling criminal made a made a really interesting um, uh, kind of a, a vessel for um, just sort of highlighting that kindness as as he starts calling in all these favors, and now Buscemi is a power broker on Wall Street, and and that somehow is an allegory to robbing banks is is uh, none too subtle, but still a, a powerful uh, bit of friendship. Yeah, uh, for these two characters. Who do you think Richard Zanuck feels more connected to, Edward Bloom or Norther Winslow? <laughs> <laughs> oh Hopefully dear, Edward Bloom. I was going to say, I I would hope. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure many people in Hollywood look at the the studio heads as more of the Norther Winslow types. Right. Maybe that's why he got out of the studio system. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you know, we we haven't really talked about. Um, uh, we haven't really talked about Zanuck actually, uh, because this is part of our Zanuck conversation. And so, you know, what, do you, you want to talk a little bit about, about Zanuck and, and this film? Well, I, I, I think, uh, what I read, which I found pretty interesting is he also found a connection to it. He had started working with Tim Burton on planet of the apes. Um, I didn't look into their connection. I actually should try to figure out how they ended up finding each other and, and ending up working together from the time of Planet of the Apes all the way until uh, Zanuck passed away. Um, that, I think, would be interesting. But after Planet of the Apes, when Tim Burton was approached, he had, as we already said, this kind of connection to the story because of his own um, relationship with his parents that he didn't really get to reconcile and they passed away. Likewise, when Zanuck... Um, saw the script. He also, as we had mentioned before, he, he had a kind of a, a an interesting relationship with his own father. His father had to fire him from uh, being the president of of Fox back in the uh, 
the late sixties. And, you know, it, he, it was, a, it was a challenge, I think for him to deal with his, uh, with his father. And so he had kind of those parental issues uh, as well. He actually came out and said later that he ended up forgiving his father for that whole situation and getting past it. But he always felt bad because he don't think he didn't think his father ever was able to reconcile with the fact that he had to fire his own son. Mm. And so I think he ended up having some, some, uh, parental issues that, um, equally he found connected to when uh, he saw the story. And so he wanted to come on board and produce it for Tim Burton. Wow. Well, it was, uh, in, in my book, it was a good call. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, how did the film end up, uh, performing it, it, it didn't it, do as well as they would have liked, I'm but sure. it made money. I see that it's the, the production budget on it was, uh, let's see, 70 million, a nice chunk of change. Mm-hmm. Um, I see another number here that says the total budget was 105 million. So I'm guessing that that must be kind of a prints and advertising budget mm-hmm. of about uh, 35 million. So total budget. 105 million domestically it grossed just under 70 million worldwide about 123 million give or take uh give or take a million or two pocket change that's just pocket change right um it it looks like it just made its money back i so i guess it's a success I, absolutely, I think it's a it's absolutely a success. It did it made its money back and it made a it made a, a And it makes grown men cry. It makes grown men cry. Admittedly, maybe emotionally oversensitive men who wish they had horrible relationships with their father <laughs> so they could get all this this emotional poison out of their systems. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, yeah, I, it was a success because I love this movie, and uh, that's that's about all I have to to say on the matter. Uh, other uh, other particular highlights of of this movie: Danny Elfman, who does all of Tim Burton's music. Where do you stand on the music? Uh, this is yeah. He he was nominated for an Oscar for this one, and interestingly. I think this is one of his weaker scores for Tim Burton's films. I connect, I, I and I do like it. I mean, I have it. I I listen to it. It's it's great music. But I find the scores for so many other movies that he's done with Tim Burton to be so much stronger. And um, um, yeah, it's but it's still it's good music. I mean, having the Tim Burton Danny Elfman combo is is almost never fails. You know what's interesting about that? I find that I find your I find that you say it's one of his weaker uh, his weaker scores really interesting. I don't necessarily uh, uh, disagree with that. I mean, I I I didn't find the score particularly noteworthy of of uh, of uh, Elfman's scores, uh, but I also found it the most uh, God, what's the word? Maybe original of the the Tim Burton Danny Elfman scores. Uh, it's hmm. the one. It's the one that stands out as different from the rest. I, you know, he's one of those that I think is uh, almost more sort of a characteristic style than than the Johns of of uh, uh, cinema and the Jameses of cinema uh, score work. I think Danny Elfman is, you know, man, you can pick that guy coming out a mile away. Well, you can, and this this two, movie, two I, think it, it I, I think it was tougher. 
It's, There's Oingo Boingo, I don't, Danny. And you can't pinpoint that just on Tim Burton because Danny Elfman has kind of the wild and crazy Danny Elfman, which mm-hmm. he does, you know, also for Barry Sonnenfeld, like in the Men in yep, Black yep, films. Yep, yep. He, he really has that wild, crazy music. But then he also has amazingly beautiful, sensitive stuff that's just lush and gorgeous. Summersby is just a, a stunning score. Um, black, uh, black Beauty. I mean, he, he really can do some amazing music. Big Fish falls on that side of the line. Everything else that he does for Tim Burton pretty much is on the yeah. other side. Um, but and, and you're right. This one has that sensitivity, and it's, it has a much nicer feel to it than the, the kind of the manic Danny Elfman music. I just don't... It's not one that I can hum. I, I, I don't connect to it. It serves its purpose as far as um, kind of an emotional through line in the film. But I, I honestly, I mean, it's not one that I could pinpoint. You know, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to sit and listen to it and go, okay, yeah, those are the themes again. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the. I, I think that's the. That's the. That's the story for me. Like I actually, uh, you know, I had seen the movie a couple of times before. I made note that that was actually a Danny Elfman score. It was that. It you know usually you see him. You know, you can hear him in the first few notes. Men in Black, yeah. and it's tough to tough to miss. Right. Okay, so uh, it made its money. You still only marginally like it. It's a movie no, you sort of like. I I really do. Like you it. cry at this I movie? Just, I want this is a this is my problem. Okay, I want to love this film because this film has everything in it that I want that that I love. It's this is a film that I should that should be up in my top hundred. But every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, it's just so close, but I just, it's not quite there. And so that's what frustrates me with it. It's not that I marginally like it. I really like it. I just, I, I want, I think my frustration is that I want it to be so much more and I just never quite, it never quite gets there for me. Okay. I'm, I'll, I'll give you, I'm going to give you that. Okay. Thank that's you. It's going to be okay. I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, well, I've I've said my my piece. This is a fantastic film, and I I I think it's one for me that truly stands out. Uh, up to this point in Danny Elfman's or, or not Danny Elfman's <laughs> Tim Burton's, uh, you know Tim Burton's canon. I think it's a um, catalog. I think it really is a is a highlight. It's the most personal uh, that I think we get out of him, and and uh, is uh, just really touching, uh, and. To me, it succeeds on on just about every level. Um, so where where do we go from here? Oh wait, one no, last you have a, note. this is your thing. Uh, you have another thing. You're gonna make I, I, it sound I like I I'm to, rushing. I have you. to do one last little thing. All right. Um, Ruthie, the little girl in this film, yep, is played by Miley Cyrus. Yes, Ruthie. And I never, I've never caught that before. Like I, you know the. The times that I've seen this, I've never noticed that that was Miley Cyrus. I had to read that. That's go, oh, really funny. That's yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, Miley Cyrus. Boy, she's come a long way, <laughs> hasn't she? Huh? Am I right? <sighs> you bet. You bet. <sighs> okay. So, now, anyway, oh, where do we oh, go? And from the here? last little thing, which this is something that I love, the guy playing the banjo yes. in Spectre when he first arrives. Is the guy from Deliverance, and and uh, Tim Burton found the guy. Billy Redden is his name. He tracked the guy down and put him in the film because he really wanted to have that vibe with Spectre. And so, 
for everybody who loves that that little twanging dueling banjos sound from Deliverance. That's the guy right there sitting on the porch when That's, he walks into Spectre for the first time. I did not know that. That is really cool because yeah. I do love that. I love that's about the only thing I really love about that movie. <laughs> the it's okay so i guess we won't be covering that in a future episode <laughs> we really like certain <laughs> scenes of deliverance uh, like right. a pig boy Squeal like a pig fatty yeah. <laughs> i didn't like that movie at yeah. all uh okay where do we go from here well we're uh continuing this little uh pairing up of zanuck with uh tim burton and we're going to end our our richard zanuck series with uh, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. I like this one too. Quite excited. This is this is I I think probably my favorite Tim Burton film, and maybe it's just because it's uh, based on Sondheim or something. Yeah. I don't know, but I I just love it. I think it's fantastic. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Totally, very excited about it. Uh, I I got nothing else. Uh, where if people have made it this far, where do they go to find out more about you, Andrew? They can uh, follow me on Twitter at, uh, where am I on Twitter? Is that a complete brain fart? At Soda Creek Film is where they can find me. Or over on Facebook at Soda Creek Film. And, of course, at Facebook.com slash Movies We Like. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, you can uh, definitely catch up with us there. You can catch up with me at Pete Wright on the Twitter. And I encourage you to do so. Would love to, uh, would love to hear from you good people. Uh, here. and subscribe to the show on iTunes leave us a note and a review it really helps uh, other people discover other uh, other film nerds who like to sit and have uh, have coffee time conversation uh, with us without us actually listening because it's pre-recorded those That's are the right. kind of people we want to discover this uh, this podcast and, and join our love for awesome Tim Burton movies I'm gonna but let's let's raise a toast to those people, though. Let's uh, everybody out there drinking their coffee while we're all chatting. Let's all have a toast. Okay. <laughs> here, here. That was good. Mm. <sighs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.